0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment, with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health, housing has an impact on our education, housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods, housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today, and let's get into this episode.
1: Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we discuss opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. We're continuing our Fair Housing podcast series. So far, we've discussed the history of fair housing, trends in housing discrimination over time, and federal policy aimed at promoting equal access to opportunity. Today, we're going to discuss a variety of topics, including the fair housing implications of segregation, gentrification, and affordable housing policy. Our guest today is Dr. Lance Freeman. The Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor of City and Regional Planning and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Freeman studies how neighborhoods change and evolve over time, the role neighborhoods play in people's lives, and he is exploring how we can use social media and other new technologies as tools to study neighborhoods. Dr. Freeman has published a number of journal articles on issues related to gentrification, urban poverty, housing policy, and urban sprawl. His books include A Haven and a Hell, The Ghetto in Black America, and There Goes the Hood, Views of Gentrification from the Ground Up. Prior to beginning his academic career, Dr. Freeman worked as a researcher for Mathematica Policy Research and as a city planner for the New York City Housing Authority. We're thrilled to have him here today. Welcome, Dr. Freeman.
2: Thank you, great to be here.
1: So before we get into your research, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background, both personal and professional, and specifically what led to your interest in housing and neighborhoods.
2: Sure, I think it was my uh, experience. I grew up in New York City in the um, latter part of the 20th century and witnessed Firsthand, the city experiencing uh, you know the fiscal crisis. Although I don't, I'm a little young to remember that, but kind of uh, the aftershocks of it and the abandonment that occurred in many neighborhoods, and then also seeing the stark disparities across neighborhoods in New York City. That so that was one thing that drew me to uh, city planning, uh, architecture. Uh, I was also fascinated by the city as a whole, you know, not just the sort of problems, but just the fact that you know it' was a very dynamic place, you know very dense, uh, and what have you. So I was also fascinated by that. So I think city planning uh, offered an opportunity to marry those interests. and i I was interested in using that uh, career as a way to address or solve some of those challenges and ultimately later on study them as a professor and teach others that they're interested in this area as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you for, for sharing that. So you have a recent book, um, A Haven and a Hell, The Ghetto in Black America, that really dives into the historical context of segregation in the United States. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how and when did this really heavily segregated living patterns that dominated 20th century America come to be? and and i'm also uh, hoping you can tell us a little bit about the role the government played in that in that process
2: sure prior to the great migration that began in world war, during world war 1 you know there were some blacks in cities and you know they certainly experienced housing discrimination and there was you know some uh, segregation as well but you know because the numbers of blacks in cities were relatively small you know they might be Concentrated in a few buildings or a few blocks, but uh, generally speaking, their numbers were not large enough to comprise an entire uh, neighborhood or part of a city. In addition, in many cities, and these would be particularly southern cities, blacks lived um, near whites, oftentimes in in the alleyways of uh, city blocks because they worked with as servants for whites or what have you. So, really, was starting during World War One when the Great Migration uh, commenced, a uh, larger number of, of Blacks started moving to cities that the numbers became large enough that they could comprise entire cities. And the, the reason why the neighborhoods became so segregated is because, you know, basically whites did not want to live in the same neighborhoods as Blacks. And, you know, there, there would be some tendency for Blacks to follow other Blacks because, you know, they were following people they knew and, you know, they wanted to live somewhere where, There were churches available, sort of similar to what you saw with the European immigrants. But it was much the level of segregation was much more intense for Blacks and much more persistent. And that's due to the intense, much more intense levels of uh, discrimination that Blacks faced. Uh, Government played a role in a number of different ways. So some of the first uh, government actions would be in the first decades of 20th century, when a number of local cities adopted racial zoning that uh, would restrict where a Black person or a white person could move. They could not move to a block, for example, where their race was in the the minority. Uh, Those were ruled unconstitutional in 1917 by the Supreme Court, primarily on the grounds that it infringed on the property owners' rights to sell their property to whoever they wanted. So it wasn't really so much uh, civil rights ruling. it, It was more property rights. And so after that, you could say particularly the judiciary was involved most heavily through the enforcement of restrictive covenants, right? So that was seen as another instrument that could be used. So although they're executed by private parties, the covenants, which would say this property cannot be sold to someone of a certain race or what have you, uh, ultimately they would have to be enforced by government, and that until 1948, I believe, again, a Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for the government to enforce such discriminatory contracts. So, th- so those were two actions in the wake of during World War One and in the wake of World War One, where government was directly involved. Federal government became heavily involved during the Great Depression when through various attempts to rejuvenate the housing industry, the government got involved in uh, refinancing mortgages through the Homeowners Loan Corporation and providing mortgage insurance through FHA. And in both of those policies, the uh, federal government codified, you could say codified the practices of private lenders who had discriminated against Blacks and Black uh, neighborhoods. And the federal government, what they did is they codified that, you know, even going as far as to issue maps that indicated very risky neighborhoods. Oftentimes, those neighborhoods would include uh, predominantly Black neighborhoods. So they codified that practice uh, you know, restricting access to mortgage credit in black neighborhoods. Federal government also, during the Great Depression, started the uh, public housing program, which helped the clear certain neighborhoods that had substandard housing. So they did help build housing that was much better than what they it was replaced, but they did so in a segregated manner uh, with public housing uh, in black neighborhoods being reserved for blacks and public housing in white neighborhoods reserved for whites. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll pause there cause I could take up the whole hour if I keep uh, going uh, but that, that carries us into the 1930s at least or World War II at least.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I think it's a really helpful summary of the government's involvement in establishing these segregated living patterns both codifying discriminatory policies within the real estate industry, but also enforcing segregation from the top down. You also write about these uh, topics extensively in your book, uh, which I would encourage listeners to check out. You also wrote a book on gentrification. I wanna try to tie these two together. So segregation artificially cloisters African-Americans into specific neighborhoods. And these neighborhoods are oft discussed during the push for integration during the 1960s and in the discussions around the Fair Housing Act, but they're not discussed as the sites of integration necessarily. So one thing I've seen you observe in your writing is that when we talk about it, the push for integration was mostly focused on black entry into white neighborhoods or the preservation of what few integrated neighborhoods already existed rather than white entry into black neighborhoods. So I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about this observation. To what do you attribute this kind of selective focus on integration?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, I think it's probably due in part to the um, sort of, identities of, of the folks who were pushing these initiatives in part. And that that would be both um, you know the whites and blacks that w- were engaged in this. Um, and I think the assumption, for example, on the part of uh, blacks who push, pushing this would have been mostly the middle class blacks who, you know would have wanted better housing opportunities, which at that time was for the most part confined to predominantly white neighborhoods. And I think from the vantage point of whites the larger society probably just saw this assumption that you know whites would not want to move into predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, you know, it was seen as these are neighborhoods with substandard housing, higher crime. So so why would anyone move there if they didn't have to? So I think that was sort of part of it was sort of a bias that just the assumption would be we want to help blacks move into white neighborhoods and you know, presumably there wouldn't be any whites that would uh, be moving into black neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, and I think you, you see that a little bit in some of the discussions, even around the Fair Housing Act, this kind of explicit focus that a lot of it was on enabling these kind of artificial barriers that have prevented you know, African-Americans with means from moving into the neighborhoods that they choose, as opposed to you know a larger scale, um, in a, uh, so kind of selective integration as opposed to whole scale integration. Now that that dynamic, this dynamic of focused on black entry into white neighborhoods that changed a little bit in the first decade of the 21st century because of the emergence of gentrification as a force in urban development. And so this period is characterized by a big uptick of uh, predominantly white and just homeowners or renters with means moving into um, predominantly neighborhoods of color or or neighborhoods with working class individuals. So can you tell me about where does this come from and, and how does it play out in that Am I am I right in describing it as kind of a this first decade of the 21st century where this this really takes off?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, th- there were some instances of it occurring prior to that time, but you know, the pa- definitely uh, the pattern picked up in the 2000s compared to you know later decades of the 20th century, and I think you know that was part of the overall increase in gentrification. Um, there w- was some gentrification that was starting. You know, you can even find examples in the first decades right after World War II, but, you know, particularly during the 19, probably not by the 1970s, it started to become more noticeable. And and the process is simply that many neighborhoods in central cities had experienced white flight and disinvestment, in part due to some of the things I just talked about, like redlining. And starting in the 1970s, you start to see, uh, it becomes noticeable that, you know, some sections of cities are not experiencing a uh, disinvestment or white flight. Instead, you're having younger professionals move into these neighborhoods. Oftentimes they might re- rehabilitate the housing stock there. They might attract or be involved in opening up uh, new types of stores. And so the neighborhoods start to attract, you know, more affluent households who are, who are oftentimes white and, I think probably for most of the 1970s and 80s, it was kind of isolated. In the early 2000s, it starts to become a, a major wave, and and really, you know, hardly any large cities that did not experience at least some gentrification. And with that, you start to see gentrification in neighborhoods that were overwhelmingly black in at larger numbers than you had saw. In the past, so it, there were a number of factors contributing to it. You know, changes in the economy; economies were um, being transformed from primarily uh, manufacturing into service, business services, professional services. The types of businesses that do better or are drawn to uh, central cities, right? So these would be like law, uh, consulting, uh, information technology. And even perhaps even more important, many of the people working in those industries were uh, young professionals who tend to be drawn to central city living. Uh, You also had demographic patterns that were contributing to this. People were marrying later, having children later, having fewer children. And again, uh, younger adults, particularly childless adults, tend to be drawn to central cities. So all those things combined to make um, central cities uh, relatively more attractive compared to the suburbs in the early part of the 21st century.
1: So, I mean, you've uh, literally written the book on this, so I I know you're not going to be able to share all of your research, but you you do such a nice job of, I I guess, identifying the nuance within a very complex topic. So um, you've done quantitative analyses, you've done qualitative studies that incorporate extensive field work. So what do we know about how gentrification impacts a community? And I'm thinking about both like the perception of neighborhood residents, like how they feel about gentrification as it occurs, but also uh, in terms of outcomes like uh, say racial diversity or displacement.
2: Yeah, you know, it it's, it is nuanced as you, as you mentioned and, and, and contingent upon the particular local conditions. But I think, you know, oftentimes what can happen at least in the earlier years, I think there was some surprise that it was happening. I think now it's becoming much, it has become much more prevalent. So it doesn't necessarily surprise people. And maybe people even may, it could be instances of people overreacting and thinking there's going to be all this gentrification. But I think, you know, initially it was uh, surprising after the decades of disinvestment uh, to see that these neighborhoods are now uh, are attracting investment and, and, upwardly mobile professionals. I think people are affected differently. That kind of depends on their situation. So you could have someone, for example, who's the homeowner who might stand to, who might just decide to sell their home and um, take advantage of the windfall provided by rising property values. Could have someone who's a renter who would find that over time it'll be increasingly difficult for them, you know, assuming the rent's in their apartment rise, it would be increasingly difficult for them to stay in the neighborhood, and they would be uh, less likely to be be replaced by someone of their socioeconomic status, right? So that's contributing to the change in the demographics, the type of people who are trying to move into the neighborhood. Uh, As I mentioned previously, in many instances, gentrification is associated with an upgrading in the housing stock so people could be buying older homes and you know refurbishing them so that's going to change the physical landscape of the neighborhood i think the displacement could happen on several levels you could have You know, as I mentioned, people no longer able to afford to live in the neighborhood because uh, housing prices have risen. You could have people, as I mentioned, who in the past might have considered moving into the neighborhood, but who no longer do. Then you could also have people who feel like they don't necessarily belong in the neighborhood anymore. If the neighborhoods, if if the sort of character of the neighborhood has changed, you know, the types of stores that are opening are the type that they don't patronize or if the types of uh, services that used to be available in their neighborhood are no longer there, they may not feel comfortable there. And so though, although they may not be physically forced to move, they might simply decide to move because they don't feel like they belong anymore. So gentrification could affect the neighborhood in a multitude of ways, right? You could change it demographically, could change the economic base of different types of stores move into the neighborhood and it could also change uh, sort of the social ties and connections in the neighborhood and sometimes this spills into politics right um, if the gentrification is substantial and sustained enough you start to see changes in who might be elected to represent certain areas. Um, And then you can also start to see it in schools as well. Usually schools are a lagging indicator in gentrification, um, because oftentimes the first people moving in are young professionals who don't have children. But over time, as people more and more, uh, say, upwardly mobile households move into the neighborhood, and and they get older, and they start to have children, and and not everyone wants to move to the suburbs. And so then as that population increases, it could change the school population as well. So it can affect a lot of things in a neighborhood over a period of time. You know, some neighborhoods have sustained a mix of different classes of people for a number of years. So in that way, it's a little bit different than the white flight that characterized neighborhood change in much of the 20th century. The shifts tend to stay, at least they seem to be more gradual. I'm actually working on a study trying to quantify that, but it seems more gradual than what was happening, say, in the 1950s and 1970s, when, you know, just a handful of Blacks moved to a neighborhood, next five years, the neighborhood would flip completely.
1: You know, and one, another thing I just want to emphasize that I've heard you write about, even when residents perceived that the, the services and amenities in their neighborhoods were improving, and that this was a benefit to them, this sense of frustration that it took the arrival of other people for that, for those services and amenities to improve.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, that was uh, interesting for me to find, you know, people, the people feeling like it was sort of uh, rubbing salt in a wound, you know, and it, I think it did lay bare uh, some of the cynicism that I think that's due to previous disinvestment and disenfranchisement. So you have this sort of reservoir of, of uh, cynicism that, can be hard to overcome, and and people are, are, are skeptical of things that, you know, even if ostensibly they're presented as something that they would benefit from as well, people are oftentimes skeptical of it.
1: Yeah, and I think the historical context you provided at the beginning of the podcast is a really good reminder of just one of the many reasons for that cynicism. I want to return to a point you made about the more gradual nature of gentrification, at least compared to the more rapid nature of white flight. So we know that if left unchecked, gentrification can cause negative outcomes, some of which you just mentioned, like displacement. Is there anything that policymakers can do when this process is is taking place over time that can either prevent the negative outcomes that you mentioned, or uh, even possibly promote more positive outcomes? And in particular here, I'm thinking about opportunities for sustained racial and socioeconomic integration.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I do think in terms of fair housing policy that uh, gentrification has to some extent been overlooked as a potential mechanism for for promoting, uh, you know, both race and class integration. Uh, So to the extent it is happening, I, I I think it would behoove public officials to think about, you know, how can we... Uh, take advantage of this to promote some other aims such as you know, um, integration by class, race, ethnicity. Um, so you know some of the things that could be done are, you know, providing more affordable housing in these communities. Inclusionary zoning, for example, is is a tool that seems to be well, Suited for affordable housing and gentrifying neighborhoods because it's sort of picking, piggybacking on the strength of the housing market to produce more affordable units. Some cities have adopted rent regulation. I, you know, I I guess I'm more ambivalent about that because it's such a blunt tool for providing affordable housing, but it, it 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 can help keep housing affordable for people who who live in the neighborhood. So that that is another strategy. That you know some policymakers have adopted in the wake of gentrification, uh, and I think you also have to think about the sort of uh, social side, cultural side, cultural side that that may not necessarily be the arena for policymakers or politicians to really think that they're going to affect the most change. But if the communities themselves can, you know, you know be mobilized so that they can, you know, look out for their own interests and sort of make sure they have a seat at the table. I guess where policymakers would come in is making sure they reach out to people who have lived in the community and give them an opportunity to participate in, in you know changes that are happening in their community. So I think it's you know you need a two-prong, at least a uh, two-pronged effort. One focusing on you know helping people to be able to stay in the community, but then also helping people to be able to voice their concerns and needs beyond people who may be more advantaged or who are moving into the neighborhood who already have more resources.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a great point. So, I mean, so on the topic of, of affordability and these affordable housing policies, and you mentioned inclusionary zoning, maybe rent control, you, you did kind of an extensive survey of this landscape of affordable housing policies a few years ago, um, co-authored with uh, Jenny Schuette. So. So in addition to those policies that you mentioned, what else is out there that state and local governments have at their fingertips that they could employ to build and maintain affordable housing? And how would you characterize their impact kind of up to this point?
2: Yeah, as you mentioned, we did the survey. I mean, the uh, many local governments are taking advantage of or leveraging other federal programs like the low-income housing tax credit, for example, or the HOME program to use those funds, which by themselves oftentimes are not sufficient, but when combined with other resources can also help to build affordable housing. So I think all those initiatives, you know, inclusionary zoning, low-income housing tax credit, Um, The Housing Voucher Program, which is a federal program that's become a quite robust, I think it's actually the largest affordable housing program, although it's not actually building housing, but I think it's funding the the greatest number of units. Um, All of those initiatives have created or funded a substantial number of units. I think it's somewhere between 6 and 10 million housing units in the country. So it's a sizable number, but it doesn't go far enough I think particularly in um, cities where it's hard to build more affordable housing or build more housing just in general, I think that's the remaining area that people are looking at increasingly, how can we make it easier to build more housing, which by itself might not necessarily result in more affordable units being built right away. But what it might help do is take some of the pressure off of the existing housing stock and. By building, even if it's just luxury units, you know, that could actually have the side effect of reducing the pressure in terms of gentrification because people then are no longer looking for housing in, you know, formerly marginalized neighborhoods because there's a a wider supply of housing that's catering to middle class professionals. But if you don't have that, that's when people start to look for housing in older neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods that Maybe in the past they would not have looked at, um, they would have overlooked those neighborhoods, and so that contributes to the gentrification pressure. When you don't have enough housing being built for other, you know, even for more affluent households. So even though it may not appear to be a direct connection, like if you build, you know, luxury housing, how is that going to help poor people? But indirectly, it could contribute to that.
1: Yeah. So I mean, if you can push a button and say policymakers, this is what you should do policies that they could implement. Or to your point earlier, maybe it's outside of the policy realm and things that you'd really like to see that maybe are more community based. What would you like to see happen uh, either around affordable housing or or integration?
2: Yeah. Well maybe maybe I'll try to say one one about each. I think in terms of integration, I think what, you know, the um, Obama administration started to go down this path with the affirmatively furthering fair housing. And I don't know if you're previous guests talked about this, but I think, you know, they could continue, that could be continued and be uh, made more more robust. And, you know, the role the federal government could do not so much um, directing the efforts, but providing resources to sort of grassroots organizations that work in that arena. Federal government has been fairly hands-off in terms of promoting integration itself, specifically since the adoption of the Fair Housing Act, but they could You know, provide more resources and technical assistance to grassroots organizations that are engaged in that kind of activity and thinking about it, not only in terms of, you know, uh, non-whites moving into white neighborhoods, but even in terms of gentrification, how, how do we maintain lower income households in neighborhoods that are experiencing gentrification. Uh, and then in terms of affordable housing, yeah, I, I think the federal government could devote more resources to building affordable housing. Uh, I think the housing voucher program, you know, as I said, it's become quite a robust program. Uh, but I think the federal government, you know, public housing, you know, we could call it something different if we want uh, is, is much maligned. but it could be a, I think there could be a role for government to fund directly government housing, public housing, whatever you want to call it. And it could be an opportunity to think about uh, experimenting with things like using solar power or more non or renewable energy, or building in a way that's more resilient to and climate change. Right. So I think it could be thought of as a way to tackle a number of problems, affordable housing, and perhaps some other things that you know the private sector might be hesitant to jump all the way in, but the federal government could play a sort of a lead role in
1: that area. Yeah, so two quick things. One, I think I've I've seen you write about this before, but just in general, like when you consider affordable housing policy, also thinking about the racial equity and socioeconomic equity implications of those things. So, low-income housing tax credits, you know, are, uh, are a big tool lever to increase affordable housing, but where you put them matters, right? If you put them in a predominantly Black neighborhood or white neighborhood—that's going to have a racial equity impact on on the you know what the ramifications of those policies are. The second one is at, uh, your comment about a formally furthering fair housing rule is a great plug. We have uh, an upcoming podcast with uh, Justin Steele of MIT, who's done a lot of research on looking at the impact of that rule and and what it could look like in the future. So uh, thank you for okay. mentioning that. Um, All right. So, you know, you you obviously have done a lot of research in this area, and you mentioned some of the things you're working on. What further research would you like to see? Either, you know, projects that you have um, kind of on the docket, or are there other scholars that you would like to see take things up? Or, you know, what, what would you like to see further fleshed out here?
2: Yeah, I guess, you know, related to the integration, gentrification, you know, the a lot of the motivation or some of the rationale justifications for promoting integration, particularly, particularly for schools and to some extent for neighborhoods, was describing the benefits of that. And I think, with in terms of opposition to gentrification, there is an assumption that, you know, people are being harmed, low income households. But it's been, I think it's been relatively understudied how people actually you know, are affected or impacted by gentrification. So I'd like to see more work on that. You know, how, what happens to, to children that grow up in gentrifying mm-hmm. neighborhoods? Are they traumatized somehow or, you know, or are they just take it for granted that, you know, you have a neighborhood where you have some low-income households, and you have some rich people moving in or something? Yeah. So that's something I think has been relatively understudied then I'd like to see more work done on that. Maybe I'll be able to do some of it too.
1: (laughs) Well, um, I think that's a really nice place to wrap up. Um, So on behalf of all of our listeners, Dr. Freeman, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to reading all of your research in the future. Okay, great. Thanks.